So now I get to uh, share some things from the Bible with you guys. And uh, one of the things I absolutely love about the Bible is the people that it talks about, because I find myself relating to a lot of them. I, uh, I read about the things they do, the things they say, uh, their positive qualities, their really serious flaws, <laughs> their, uh, their great achievements, successes, and their really miserable failures. And it all just seems very real to me. And I want to have you look with me today at uh, the story of one guy whose, whose story is really tied up very closely with this event we're celebrating today, the resurrection of Christ. Because Thomas was a guy who didn't believe it. When everyone around him was convinced He wasn't. He was not convinced. He was skeptical. Even though he was one of the original first 12 followers of Jesus, uh, even though he was convinced that Jesus was somebody special, when this rumor started going around that Jesus was alive again three days after he'd been put to death, Thomas wasn't buying it. Uh, he, he was not about to be taken in by, by wishful thinking. I suspect Thomas thought that everybody else was just getting, you know, their better judgment clouded by their, by their grief or, uh, you know, by, by their affection for Jesus. And that was leading them astray. And Thomas was not going to do that. Thomas was a realist. And I can relate to that. Maybe you can too. You know, many people probably assume that because I'm a pastor, I'm just kind of hardwired to be really religious, you know. I must have grown up in a really religious home and all that, and it's not true. That's really not who I am. Uh, I did believe in God at a young age as a child, but to me that just seemed very reasonable, Anything about where life comes from, life comes from life, right? And uh, if something's complex, then that means somebody intelligent made it. I mean, that, that just made sense to me. But then in high school, the whole evolution, creation, controversy really raised some very serious doubts uh, in my mind, and it, it really provoked me to wrestle with some really, really hard questions. And um, I was motivated to do some really careful research about this whole Christianity thing because the thing is, if it's not true, I don't want to believe it. You know, even if it seems nice, even if it might be helpful in some ways, if it's not true, I don't want it. So I can relate to a skeptical guy like Thomas, and uh, I want to invite you to just look with me at Thomas's journey from an unconvinced skeptic to a convinced believer in Jesus' resurrection. And, and I hope 
that there's something in his journey that will be encouraging to you, maybe helpful to you in your journey. So I'm going to read the account that highlights Thomas's skepticism and what happened to change his mind, and just want to think through how his experience could be relevant for us. So let me set the stage for what I'm about to read. For some reason, on the evening of that first Easter Sunday, so Easter Sunday happened in the morning, that evening, for some reason, Thomas was not with the other disciples, and the next time he got together with them, he found they had an amazing story to tell. So this is from the book of John, uh, one of the biographies we have about Jesus written by the disciple John, one of his closest associates and followers. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, apparently that was his nickname, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, apparently to make sure it was real, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I think Thomas's experience raises a couple of really important questions about Jesus' resurrection. And the first is, what would it take to convince you? What would it take to convince you? Now, I know many of you are already convinced. You know, that's why you're here today. Uh, in your case, the question is more, what did it take to convince you? And you know something? If you've never really thought that through, I, I would encourage you to do that. To really think that through, just in case you get to talk to somebody else about it and they want to know, well, well, why are you convinced? But maybe you're here and you're not convinced. You know, maybe you're here just because, you know, that's the thing to do on Easter or, or maybe somebody wanted you to be here and you're just trying to make them happy. Or somebody said, get in the car. And so you did and, and here you are. But, you know, did Jesus rise from the dead? Not that you're not too sure about that and if that's you I wonder what it would take to convince you see I think every one of us just naturally falls somewhere on this spectrum 
from really easy to believe, easy to convince, to very, very hard to convince. You know, so at the one end, here we've got the gullible people. Yeah, the people that just believe almost anything just because you tell them. And uh, they're they're just, I, I had a friend like that in high school. And she was the perfect victim for every April Fool's prank you could think of. Because she just, she just always believed you. She did not have a skeptical bone in her body. And you know, I really worry about people like that. Uh, and then at the other end, though, you've got the cynics. And these are the people who won't hardly believe anything. And I mean, they just assume everybody's, you know, either lying to them or, or deceived, deluded, they're just not going to be taken in by anybody. They're not going to take anybody's word for it. I wonder where you fall on that spectrum. Because I think most people, you know, we don't want to be gullible. But I don't think we want to be cynics either. I think we want to be reasonable. Reasonable. Don't you want to be reasonable? Doesn't that sound like a nice word? And we actually have a, a, something in our judicial system, a standard called beyond a reasonable doubt. And the idea is when the evidence about something is good enough, then at some point it's reasonable to be convinced. And to continue to doubt beyond that is unreasonable. Well, let's apply that standard to Thomas and his experience. It, was his doubt reasonable or unreasonable? Well, I, to me, at first glance, his doubt seems very reasonable, right? Of course he would doubt that Jesus was alive. He'd seen him brutally executed just a few days before. And dead men don't come back to life. So it'd be crazy not to ask for hard evidence before you believed such a thing. So you look at it, and his, his doubt seems reasonable. But is it? Well, when you go a little deeper, you discover, eh, maybe not so much. Notice the statement, the question, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, what does that mean? Here's where I think we need to be really careful not to misunderstand this. This is not saying what I think some people might assume it's saying. It's not saying we should just believe things without evidence. I know that's what some people think the Christian message is, you know, Hey, just believe. Just believe in God. Just believe in Jesus. Just believe in the Bible. Even though there's absolutely no evidence for it. Just believe. Because you know what? God wants you to believe without evidence. That's that's really not true. That's not the message of the Bible at all. The Christian message is not an appeal to believe without reasons. It's an appeal to believe for good reasons. 
you know why the Bible says we should believe in Jesus? Because He rose from the dead. That's a reason. And do you know why it says we should believe He rose from the dead? Because He was seen by reliable eyewitnesses. That's a reason. Hundreds of people said they saw Jesus alive. They talked to Him. They touched Him. They even ate with Him. And then they ran around telling everybody about what they'd seen. Even though that got them into big trouble with the authorities. And some of them, it led to their death. So Jesus is not saying, hey, Thomas, you should have believed without any evidence whatsoever. No, what he's saying is, Thomas, you had all the evidence you needed. All of these eyewitnesses, all of these people that you know and trust, telling you I was alive, but you didn't believe them even when you could have. Thomas, you really didn't need me to come and show up and convince you personally. You had the evidence you needed. Think about it. Think about how many things that we are all convinced of, not because we have seen with our own eyes, but because of eyewitness testimony. I mean, most of what we know from history, we know from eyewitnesses even though we weren't there. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was this thing called the Civil War in America. But I wasn't there. And I'm pretty sure there was a guy named Abraham Lincoln who was president during that time. Uh, how do I know that? I wasn't there. I mean, I never met the guy. I, don't, I never met Abe. You know, I mean, yeah, there's a little portrait of him on the penny, but... That could be anybody. I don't know who that is. Or you think about all the places in the world that you believe exist, even though you've never been there. Hey, let's just do a little poll. How many of us are convinced that there is really such a place as Iceland? Raise your hand. If you believe there's such a place as Iceland, raise your hand. Okay, now, keep wait. Now, how many of you have actually been to Iceland? You know, I knew there'd be one. I did <laughs> I knew there'd be one. Sir, would you please testify that there is really such a place as Iceland? But you were there? Okay. Now the rest of you can decide whether you want to believe this guy or not. And, you know, today we've got photographs, we've got uh, internet technology, we've got videos. We can see a lot of things with our eyes that we couldn't have seen before. But think about it. We have thousands of years of history, of people, of places, of events that we've never seen with our own eyes, but we're pretty certain about. And it's all because of eyewitness testimony. If you don't have enough evidence to be sure, it's reasonable to be unconvinced. But there is a point at which doubting becomes unreasonable or stubborn or pig-headed. Uh, many years ago, I was on a trial. No, I was a juror on a trial. I personally wasn't on trial. It was a criminal trial. <laughs> there, was, there were 12 of us jurors, and 11 of us 
at the end of the trial were convinced beyond a reasonable doubt of the defendant's guilt. But one, there was one juror who remained unconvinced and nobody could change your mind. Do you know what her reason was for remaining unconvinced? She thought the defendant could not possibly be guilty of the terrible thing he was accused of because he was so nice looking. True story. Now, I have to tell you, the rest of us at that point, we did not admire her skepticism. We frankly thought she was a fool. And she was interfering with justice. Well, okay, but is it different in this case, you know, with Thomas? Because let's face it, we're talking about something unique here. I mean, this, this was not a normal everyday occurrence. Dead people don't rise from the dead. So wasn't Thomas justified in doubting his friends, even though they were all saying they'd seen Jesus alive? Come on, wasn't he justified? Well, maybe if this had been the only amazing thing that he'd ever heard about, about Jesus. But this actually was just the latest in a long list of amazing supernatural things about Jesus that he already knew about. I mean, take another look at verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. So the author, John, is trying to convince us. And when he uses the word signs, he's talking about miracles that reveal Jesus' true identity. Who he really is. That he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then as you read through the book, you can read all about these signs. And and John He's claiming to be an eyewitness. I saw these things. He says he saw Jesus change water into wine. He says he saw him heal a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. He saw him feed over 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He saw Jesus give sight to to a man who was born blind. And then maybe most significant of all, he tells us that just a week before Jesus was arrested and put to death, John saw Jesus raise a dead man back to life who'd been in the tomb for several days. And notice, verse 30 says, he did these things in the presence of his disciples. That would include Thomas. So was it really reasonable for Thomas to reject the eyewitness testimony and to refuse to be convinced that Jesus had done one more miracle? Okay, how about us? None of us have seen Jesus alive. But we do have 
these eyewitness accounts. Think about what these eyewitnesses are saying to us. Think about what they're saying, about about what they heard Jesus say, about what they heard Jesus do, and especially what they all say they saw Jesus do three days after he was put to death. I mean, these documents that we have in the Bible record the claims of people who knew Jesus personally. Is it more reasonable to accept their testimony or to reject it? And that brings up the second really important question about the resurrection we get from Thomas's experience. Not just, what would it take to convince you? What would it look like if you were convinced? What would it look like? Well, we know what it looked like for Thomas. He looked at Jesus and said, My Lord and my God. What kind of response is that? Well, it's definitely not just an intellectual response. You know, Thomas isn't looking at Jesus and going, oh, wow. So it's, it's true after all. You really are alive. Fascinating. No. No way. Look at these words. My Lord and my God. I mean, what do you see in that? I'll tell you what I see. I see worship. I see Thomas saying, Jesus, you are the most important person there is. You're the one I'm going to build my life around. You're the one who's going to call the shots in my life. You tell me how to live. You tell me where to go. You tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it. Because you are my Lord and my God. Wow. Do you think that's an overreaction? Is Thomas just getting a little carried away here in the emotion of the moment? I don't think so. Not if you realize what this resurrection means. I mean, think about it. Nobody else had ever done this. And nobody's ever done it since. This was not just a near-death experience. You know, Jesus wasn't revived on the operating room table after his heart stopped. This was dead. Brutally dead. Certifiably dead irreversibly dead, and then three days later, he walks out of the tomb, not some kind of reanimated corpse, some zombie thing, but completely healed and fully alive. What do you do with a guy like that? Well, you pay attention to him. And this is why Thomas's response was not an overreaction. Because by rising from the dead, Jesus validated everything he said and validated every claim he had made about who he is. And who he claimed to be is exactly who Thomas said he is. I mean, I just want you to look at just a few of the claims Jesus made, okay? John 5, 24. 
I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, those claims are absolutely outrageous if they're not true. But what if they are true? What if Thomas got it right? You know, it seems to me there's something here for all of us to think about. The convinced and the unconvinced. If you're somebody who was already convinced that Jesus rose from the dead when you walked in here today, the question for you is, does your life look like you're convinced? When you hear Thomas say, my Lord and my God, does your heart just resonate with that and say, yeah, me too, my Lord and my God? If not, are you really convinced? You know, Thomas didn't look at Jesus and say, Oh, look, the Lord, the God. You know, some kind of keep him at a distance thing. Some kind of statement of faith. He said, My Lord and my God a statement of relationship and if you're convinced that Jesus is alive but you don't you don't have that relationship where he's actually your Lord and your God that's really the whole point of the story go back to verse 31 These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In His name. That's relational connection. I remember a guy telling me one time he took his kids to the fair. He had two boys. And they went to the... The kids wanted to ride the rides. Dad didn't want to ride the rides. Um, and so he, he's going to keep the tickets for, the, for his two boys because he doesn't want them to lose them. He says, boys, just every time you want a ticket, come and get one, and I'll give you one, and you can ride the rides, and I'll just be over here. And so every few minutes, you know, he'd look down, and here'd be a couple of hands, and he'd put a ticket in each hand. And this kept going on, and then one time he looked down, and there's three hands. And he goes, one to one, and he goes, hey, who are you? And one of his sons said, it's okay, Dad. He's my friend. And I told him you'd give him a ticket. In his name. In his name means relationship. That you may have life in his name. 
that's what God wants us to have. That's what this whole Easter thing is ultimately all about. We need life, and Jesus came to give it to us by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Why do we need life? Because we die. And why do we die? Well, here's the Bible's explanation. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, death causes this separation from God, this breakage. That's called death. But I want you to look at one of my favorite verses, 1 Peter 3.18. It says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for people who fall short of God's standard called righteousness, where we do everything God wants us to do and we do nothing that God doesn't want us to do. Jesus didn't die for anybody like that. Because there isn't anybody like that. He died for people who fall short. He died for people who mess up. He died for people separated from him because of sin. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He did it to bring you to God. We just have to admit we fall short. We just have to admit we're unrighteous. And we just have to ask, trust Jesus, and ask him to bring us to God. You know, that's what the Bible means by faith. Faith is just believing that Jesus is alive and trusting Him enough to ask Him to do what He promised. To forgive our sins and bring us to God. There's no magic formula here. You know, there's no special ritual you do. It's just trusting Jesus enough to ask Him to do what He promised. To bring you to God. And then to begin to live in light of that. To live like you're convinced that He really is your Lord and your God. You know, that's the whole reason we exist as a church. That's the whole reason we're here. We're just here to help each other live out what it looks like when you really believe that Jesus is your Lord and your God. I mean, what, what does that look like? Well, that's what we need help with. We're just here to help each other do that. And you know, if you don't have a church family... We would love to have you consider being a part of ours. But what if you're not convinced? Well, then I think the question for you is, is your doubt reasonable or unreasonable? How would you know? Well, I think reasonable doubt is this. I think reasonable doubt is when you have not yet carefully looked at the evidence, but you're willing to. Or if you have looked at the evidence and you still have some questions, that you ask those questions and you pursue answers. Here's what I don't think is reasonable. I don't think it's reasonable to be aware that world history was changed by this guy named Jesus and that all these people claim to have seen him and heard him 
and they heard him claim to be God and see him do miracles and claim that he rose from the dead. And to be aware that all of this history and all of this eyewitness testimony is there and just go, yeah, whatever. I'm not convinced. So if you're not convinced, I'd like to give you an opportunity to look at the evidence. I have a book I'd like to give you. No strings attached. It's written by a journalist called The Case for Easter. And uh, Lee Strobel was an atheist for many years. And this book is a discussion of the evidence that he uncovered for the resurrection. It's well written. It's short. It's like 90 pages. You can see it's short. And we've got a stack of those back on the uh, gift table back there. And if you're not convinced, I just want to challenge you to pick up one of the books and take it and read it. And as you interact with that evidence, if you've still got questions, I'd challenge you to follow up and ask those questions. And you could, you could email me, you could ask me your question, I'll do the best I can to answer it, or I'll point you to someone else who can. Uh, I'd love to follow up with you. I'd be happy to talk to you after the service today. My email address is on the screen, pastorscott at philida.org. Or maybe you just want to talk to the person you came with. And say, hey, are you convinced? Why are you convinced? Now let me tell you what's going to happen next. In just a minute, I'm going to give us all just a quiet moment to think and to pray if you'd like. And I can think of a few different ways that somebody might want to pray after thinking about Thomas's experience. The first is, if you're unconvinced but you're willing to check out the evidence, I'd encourage you to do something. I'd encourage you to just whisper a prayer to the one that you're not even sure is there. And just say, if you are there, lead me to the truth. Second, if you are convinced and you have already put your trust in Jesus, you have already asked him to forgive you, to be your Lord and your God, I'd encourage you to ask him to help you Live like you're convinced. Live like you're convinced. And third, if now you're convinced, but you haven't yet responded to Jesus personally, you haven't yet made that relational connection, or as Jesus talked about, putting your trust in him and crossing over from death to life, from unforgiven to forgiven, from darkness to light, if you haven't yet made that connection, you can do that today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray a simple prayer, and you can repeat it if you'd like, just to express your desire to know Jesus as your Lord, your God, your rescuer, your forgiver. And the words I'm going to say are not magical. It's not some just special magic prayer. But if they express the desire of your heart, then I'd encourage you just to say them because God knows your heart. God knows your heart. So let's just pray. I'm going to give all of us a quiet moment to talk to the Lord in the quietness of our own hearts, and then I'm going to lead in that prayer. And if you'd like to pray with me, you're welcome to do that. Let's, let's just bow our heads and pray.
Now, if you'd like to begin that personal connection with Jesus, you could pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I'm convinced. I'm convinced you died on the cross for people like me. I'm convinced you rose from the dead. And I'm convinced that I need you to be my rescuer, my Lord, and my God. So I'm asking you right now to forgive me, to accept me, to come into my life and help me. Help me live the way you want me to. Thank you. Thank you for convincing me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising from the dead for me. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for giving me the free gift of eternal life. And help me from this point on learn to trust you more and more. Amen.